we have to build in that love for future generations into the way our society values things. Hi, I'm Vicki Robin. In partnership with the Post Carbon Institute, I'm hosting short to the point conversations with diverse cultural scouts, asking each one the same question, what could possibly go right? The invitation is to see through these wise eyes what is opening up in the present moment as normal is upended and next is not at all clear. These conversations were recorded a few months into the pandemic and in the weeks following the murder of George Floyd. Let's see what today's guest says. Hi, I'm Vicki Robin and I'm here with Severin Cullis Suzuki. Uh, for another conversation around the question, what could possibly go right? Severin is a Canadian environmental activist, speaker, television host, and author. As a child, Severin and friends started the Environmental Children's Organization, culminating in a speech to the United Nations at the Rio Earth Summit in 1992 when she was only 12. And I must say, I've probably listened to that 100 times. She is a passionate advocate for diversity in the natural world and in human society, speaking widely about intergenerational justice, the need for ethics in our economics and respect and recognition of indigenous rights and title. Um, welcome Severin and thank you for making time to respond to our core curiosity in this time of great upheaval. The question is what could possibly go right. And I'd like you to first, just in a couple of minutes, take us from the stage at the Earth Summit where you woke the conscience of the world, much like Greta Thunberg is waking us now, to your advocacy on cultural survival, and then go for it. So, thanks. Well, thank you, Vicki. It's always wonderful to speak with you and to just tap into the conversation that you and others are having about, you know, where we're at right now, what we can do. Um, so my name's Severn, and um, I have to say that I remain very rooted to what I learned as a child. Um, what I learned from my family and my family's experiences before the Earth Summit. So the reason that I cared so deeply was definitely because of my childhood. I grew up in Vancouver in the province of British Columbia in Canada. And it's an incredible, incredibly um, beautiful natural environment in BC. So um, we grew up spending time um, in Vancouver. We grew up right by the ocean. Before Vancouver was this, you know, the, the ground zero of the housing, um, you know, just a well, really crisis and spike in, in, in uh, housing value. So it was, you know, more of a regular community and um, spent a lot of time uh, in the ocean. Um, my parents beca started becoming connected to environmental issues in the 1980s. So I was just, you know, like five years old and they started getting involved simultaneously in environmental issues and indigenous issues. Really, the two can't really be separated. And so when I was about five or six years old, we um, hiked into the Stein Valley, which was a valley that was under threat for, for logging, incredible place of natural and cultural value. 
Um, and we, we went to the, we hiked into the Stein Valley because the, the Lytton Band in partnership with environmental groups were trying to raise awareness and they threw these Stein Valley music festivals to draw attention and to celebrate this incredible spot. Everybody hiked into this, you know, beautiful Alpine um, plateau and, uh, and had a rock concert. <laughs> We stayed in teepees and it was life-changing. It was life-changing for my parents. They met incredible activists and, and people fighting for their land, people fighting for their rights, people fighting for the earth. They, they learned that, you know, that is that the earth and taking care of the natural systems of which we are a part is so fundamental to indigenous values not only for you know people in that area but they also at those that those festivals met people from the Haida nation of Haida Gwaii which was you know still in BC but quite far away on the coast an archipelago of islands so and Bail get us to now the earth summit and now to the present moment so we can go forward in this question I'm building it up because the roots of connection with the earth are truly held by indigenous people. And it is still held today. It has been held for thousands of years. So when I then started realizing as a child that the earth was being attacked by modern society, that everything we do essentially harms our ecosystems, it totally floored me. I'd kind of had this beautiful education. And that's why I cared enough to start a club when I was you know, eight, nine years old with my friends. That's why I cared enough to um, you know, speak out as much as I could. And eventually through an incredible um, amount of support from our parents of this club that we had created, the Environmental Children's Organization, through the support of our community, we raised the funds to go to Rio and serendipity. You know, we were meeting people at the right moment. We were working hard. I ended up getting the opportunity to speak for five minutes to the UN. And that um, five minutes incredibly was videotaped. And it was really, it's really an important part that it was videotaped because this was just before the internet went public. And um, someone at the UN after this uh, speech that I gave that resulted in a standing ovation and you know being quoted in the, in the concluding remarks, the, the, the documentation of that was sent to, to my, me and my family and we started making video copies of it and sending it out to anyone who would, um, who, who would, was interested and people were interested. People were writing handwritten letters, um, requesting a copy, a VHS copy of this a video. And so we were sending them out at cost, um, actually requesting, um, I think it was a $5 donation. Um, and, uh, and we've sent them out and eventually DVDs, we're sending them out on DVDs and eventually the internet became a thing and people uploaded it and it just went around the world um, again. And so it's just an interesting um, part of it that it was just, uh, you know, that it was taped and that it was able to go viral um, kind of before going viral was a thing. And it, it blows my mind because I, you know, that is, almost 30 years ago, that is a generation ago. And I've, you know, done a lot of things since then. But the speech that a 12 year old gave to the world representatives at the Earth Summit remains one of the most powerful things that 
um, that I've done and one of the most impactful. So I've had a lot of time to think about why, why it's so important. And um, really, I, I, I come to the conclusion that it is because of, because of love, because of the most powerful thing belonging to the human race, which is the power of love and love that we have for our children, for future generations. It is built in to our, you know, our souls. That's why people still react. That's why people care so much about Greta Thunberg today and the youth that are rising up, you know. Uh, they care because we love. And I have been saying this for almost 30 years that we have to build in that love for future generations into the way our society values things, that into the values of our society, into the infrastructure of our society. Because right now, our infrastructure, the values that our society upheld are the opposite of love for future generations. And yet you talk to any individual and you ask them, you know, what do you love most? And it's, you know, if they have kids, it's their kids. So we have a fundamental disconnect that we have to bridge a difference, a disconnect between who we are as individuals and what we value and what our society upholds. And, wow. and we gotta fix it. And so in this moment of upheaval, you know, when the normal, whatever we thought was normal, which includes this blindness to intergenerational justice, that's part of the normal too busy we can't pay attention you know they'll take care of themselves they'll save us you know that sort of attitude when this is cracking up what do you see oh what doors do you see opening up to the to the love and that would yeah i'm gonna cry you know that would sort of sweep us on a wave over the great wall of resistance to actually addressing the things that you most care about? I think, you know, we have these opportunities, these little moments of, you know, where everything kind of is on hold and people are aware. And so it's perfect. It's, this is the time to be asking exactly this question. You know, how can we actually act on this, these, this moment before we kind of charge forward and society does, you know, picks up, um, and I think right now we're in a period, we're in a, a, a very unusual moment of global humility. When we realize, you know, holy cow, you know, we aren't as in control as we think. You know, maybe we need to change our actions and habits a bit for the better of all. You know, I mean, we're having some amazing conversations about taking care of our elders and worrying about the greater community rather than just worrying about your own your own self and your own freedoms i mean we have a different there's a different tenor of the conversation of the of the global conversation right now so this humility i think um you know to have to have people um in the western you know, Western society talk, talk with humility. It's just, it's a beautiful thing. And I hope we extend that because there's all kinds of things we think we should keep our humility for. And one of the things that I return to, and this is, you know, why kind of the origin story of why I care is important is, you know, now I live in an indigenous community. I live on Haida Gwaii. It is the homeland of the Haida nation. And um, they've, 
They've been here for at least 14,000 years. Um, they've survived terrible epidemics. By 1915, the Haida population was reduced from 30,000 to uh, 588 people. So this is a really interesting point for the Haida Nation too. And, and I, I think this is a very similar story to all over the world where colonized peoples have you know, survived and held on and they still have these values that have the seeds of our human survival. They still are connected to place. They still are connected to um, the traditions that have evolved out of generations of mistakes, generations of insight, vision, um, harmony with the earth. And I think that there's a huge opportunity for um, you know, mainstream society in this moment of humility to, and in this moment where we've suddenly discovered diversity is important, um, there is the moment for us to listen. And there's incredible stuff out there. I wanted to show you um, this beautiful book that I've just discovered. It's called uh, Low Tech, Designed by Rad Radical Indigenism. And it's, um, wow. it's really cool. It's uh, put together by Julia Watson. And on the cover, um, you can see, kind of see there, these two incredible living root bridges. And this is an amazing technology um, that's been de developed by um, one of the one of the nation one of the tribes in India. It's an ancient practice of building of training these roots um, across river systems um, so that they can actually withstand flash floods. They actually have rocks on them. And um, <clears throat> they actually can last for 250 years, much, much longer than any man-made bridges. They're living bridges. So you have the women going one way on this, this, uh, this, this bridge, and then they're going the other way on the top. There's another bridge up top. Oh, wow. Um, so there's all these examples of unbelievable uh, technology developed in a sane way, in a you know, living life positive way that, um, you know, really we need right now when we are facing climate change, when we are facing, um, you know, social breakdown of this very short, very young society with no kind of ethics or spirituality. We have, there's so many examples of how we can make it through. We just have to listen and pay attention and come with humility. So I think that that is one of the one of the most um, that is one of the most the biggest opportunities we have, and the opportunity is that these cultures still exist. They have survived. They've survived the onslaught. They've survived the epidemics. And if we listen, they're still here. They can they can show us a way. Wow. Wow. And are you finding that the technologies of listening today? are actually vehicles for that knowledge to spread such that people whose hearts are now open and their minds are humbled can actually, besides this one little interview with you, you know, what are the channels by which, where do you, how do you see us, you know, white people from America with no ethics or spirituality, you know, do you see 
where is the intersection of awakening here? You know, so that the messages get across the, the cultural synapses that have been occupied by triviality. Yeah, well, it's going to be a kind of messy movement forward, I, I think, you know, but we can't do worse than we've been doing. And by promoting a culture of listening and humility, I think we will, and, and respect, you know, um, I think we will, we will make progress. Um, you know, it's really such an intense conversation that we're having right now about race and we're having it in Canada for sure. I mean, there's, we have lots of pro police um, brutality and uh, militarization and um, one group that it's really been so uh, awful for our indigenous people in Canada, um, really systematic opp oppression. And it's been really in the interest of the state because um, you know, Canada wants to assert its sovereignty, obviously, and it doesn't want to pay, it, pay us to really pay attention to the fact that, you know, especially here in British Columbia, there were no, hardly any um, treaties signed. So essentially, there is no legal agreement that this is Canada. And so, you know, if you're a law-abiding citizen, then you're not on Canadian soil, right? I mean, there's all these, you know... Uh, these kind of breaks in reality that you kind of have to ignore if you're going to just, uh, you know, exist in the, as a Canadian, right? So, um, you know, we're having this tension, this really intense conversation. And for people who've never had it before about like, well, what does it mean that we're living on stolen land? Like actually living on land that doesn't belong to Canada. Um, it's really uncomfortable and it's really difficult. And everybody's really worried about like, what I do and like I don't you know they're they're afraid of doing something wrong and um, making it worse and I, I I understand that feeling but unfortunately there's no shortcut you have to kind of launch yourself in and um, be part of the conversation and educate yourself and be quiet and listen and try to I mean we have to just try to move forward in these uncomfortable spaces and in that uncomfortable mess, you know, if we always come back to it and always come with love and try to come with as much respect and humility, you know, we will make progress. But it's not gonna be, I mean, you know, coming with those attitudes is as much direction as I really can give. Um, and, you know, just coming with respect is gonna be a, such a huge change from what was in the past that that alone will really help us. Wow. I hear you. And even I think in our question about what could possibly go right, even that question, as cool as it is, as open-ended as it is, you know, has embedded in it the sort of solutionary American mind, you know, like, just tell me where to step. <laughs> so you saying where to step is, is to accept that you're part of something that has been toxic without all that, ah, I can't stand that I did that. You know, I didn't mean to, <laughs> you know, accept that that's a reality. This is sort of a, a, a hidden tumor that is now expressing itself on the surface and you can't just put a bandaid on it. You know, you have to address this thing 
as part of your own reality, that the body of who you are, the people in your history has created this. And, and the healing is listening. The healing is respect. The healing is a willingness to get it wrong and then keep on listening with respect. You know, it's just, so I love that you've given us that. And uh, yeah, go ahead. Well, that just made me think of, um, you know, years ago, I went to my mother-in-law, who is a, an incredible language and knowledge keeper, medicine woman um, here um, in the Haida Nation. And I, I said to her, you know, um, were there any kind of teachings about sustainability that the Haida had? You know, this is a classic kind of non-Indigenous approach. Like, you know, tell me what teachings, you know, <laughs> what can I write down principles and um she didn't answer me and I kind of thought she didn't hear. And, and then three days later, she said, you know, you asked me a question um, and it was about uh, Haida teachings about sustainability and I've been thinking about it. And uh, she said, you know, it just comes down to one word, respect. Respect for yourself, respect for other people, respect for your food. That is a huge, huge piece in Haida teachings is respect for your food and, you know, respect for the earth that provides all of it, you know? So it just comes down to respect. And it kind of blew my mind, first of all, that she didn't feel that she needed to answer right away, which is what we do, right? We'd like to like, here's the question, you know, you give me a question and I'm gonna give you the answer right away because I figured it out. Um, and uh, so she, she actually really thought about it. She really thought about it. And then she had a very simple answer. And I thought about what respect really is and how, you know, our culture, our mainstream culture is, I mean, we are the opposite of a culture of respect. We have respect for nothing, nothing at all. I mean, even things, you know, I think about how I was treated um, back in 1992. And yeah, I did get some attention at the time for sure. And I was invited to speak all over the world um, as a young person about the environment. And yes, I definitely had some people who disagreed profoundly with what I, with what I thought. But I did not get the level of, I mean, I guess for lack of a better word, disrespect that Greta Thunberg is receiving. I mean, the amount of hate and disgusting comments that I have seen towards this, you know, youth is so shocking. And it really, I mean, that's one of the things that I think has changed the most in terms of the, the degradation of the global conversation, this kind of public commons, you know, I mean, the safety of it has really been destroyed. So the disrespect is the norm um, for everything and anything. And, you know, imagine if we had a culture of respect, it would just be so different. So I just wanted to say, you know, like in terms of, of really listening and, um, you know, how we step, it's, 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 as, it's as important as what we do is how we do it. Oh, that's beautiful. And I think that is a beautiful place to wrap this up. I could go on forever, um, but uh, what a beautiful um what a beautiful stepping stone you've offered us. And it's sort of 
probably unexpected to the Western mind, but it's the perfect stepping stone. So thank you, Severin, so much. Thank you very much. It's an honor. <laughs>